Would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3? We'll be looking at verses 9 to 20 this morning. It's a powerful song that they just sang about God's grace, and it just uh, fits so well with what we're going to be talking about today. It's what we need more than anything else is God's grace. Listen to this passage of Scripture. Uh, as Paul writes, we're continuing our study in the book of Romans, and again we'll be looking at verses 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away together, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, and we ask that your Holy Spirit again would guide us to understand and see your truth. As hard as we may try to explain things or make things clear or as much as you have laid on my heart, I can't communicate that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. Because it takes you to open our eyes to see the human condition, to see the nature of our heart and our world, and to understand your truth. And so we ask humbly that you would speak to us today, Father, and help us to see things clearly and to understand what it is that you want each one of us to do in response to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the songs that we often sing, in fact, we're going to close our service with it later today, is the song Amazing Grace. And that song begins with this line, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I underline that word wretch because I want to ask you the question, do we really believe that? Do we sing that song and think about the words that we sing, or do we kind of gloss over them and think, well, you know, that was probably John Newton, but that's not me. You know, do maybe that's somebody else who's really bad, but I'm not so bad. I think there's a lot of people in our world who would think that. I wonder sometimes if we are more like the church in Laodicea that said this, that said, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But Jesus said, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He was talking to a church. A church of people who would have thought that they were believers who had gathered. And yet had come to the point where they were unable to see their own sin and their own condition. And I think that's a big part of the problem today when we talk about revival coming to America or longing for that, it starts with us. It starts with our heart. It starts with the church. And it spreads to the nation. 
The problem is that often we just don't see our sin as God sees it. And I've said this before because I think this is what Paul is building on in the book of Romans, is that we will not see our need for a Savior until we see our sin and guilt before a holy God. Until we see our sin as God sees it, there's a whole lot of people in our world that will never see their need for a Savior. Someone needs to speak the truth about the human condition. And that's what Paul does in the book of Romans as he lays things out there. It's like a doctor who has come and is giving the diagnosis and we say, Doc, give it to me straight. I need to know where I stand. And that's what Paul does when he looks at the human heart. What he tells us in this passage of Scripture is that we are all under sin. We are all guilty. Verses uh, 9 to 20 really are the conclusion to Paul's argument of what he's been saying in chapters 1 to 3. He's talked about how the pagan man is guilty of sin. He suppresses the truth. He stuffs it. He doesn't want to admit that there is a God. He talks about the moral man who has the law of God written in his heart. He fails to keep it. And even the religious man, the Jew that he was talking about there, who had the Old Testament Scriptures and God's Word revealed to them, so many times they were just giving God lip service, but their hearts were far from Him. And so Paul says, what should we conclude then? Are we any better? No. The Jewish person is no better than the Gentile. All have sinned. All need a Savior. When Paul writes that all are under sin, he is talking about something very specific here. When he uses that phrase, it's the same kind of phrase that you would use to talk about somebody in bondage to slavery. You see, to be under sin is to be under its dominion and power. We are enslaved by it, and we are powerless to change ourselves. And that is the human condition. And when you look at our world and you listen to the news or you read the newspaper, you can see the evidence of sin all over our world. In the wars and the crimes and the cruelty and injustice and greed and oppression and all of those kind of things that are an evidence of what the Bible calls sin. And try as hard as we can, as many times to try and fight that, stop that, prevent that. We can't ultimately solve it or change it. And what's interesting is that that's often, that's not how the world sees sin. The world's view of sin is more like this. Some would say that sin or evil is just an illusion. That's what the Eastern religions will say. Uh, It's just an illusion. You know, it's kind of this balancing power of good and evil in the universe, and it's all just kind of free-flowing. And don't ask me to explain that, because when I look at our world, evil looks pretty real to me. It looks pretty apparent. Some in our world will say that sin is relative, that right and wrong depend upon the circumstances. There are no absolutes, and it's really how you feel, and you've got to make those kind of choices yourself. And then there are others who would say that sin is archaic. It's just plain old-fashioned. I mean, that's kind of one of those things the church used to keep people in line by producing guilt, you know, and those kind of feelings. So let's just change the standard and make people feel better. And so sin is no longer sin. 
In fact, the result of those kind of views in our world is that people don't sin anymore. They just make mistakes or bad decisions or choices. There are times when we will hear someone who was caught in something, uh, whatever it is, whether it's a politician or a priest or a pastor or a person on the street, and you can hear sometimes a confession that really doesn't sound like a confession. You know, they kind of skirt the issue. No one ever wants to admit that they sinned. We just don't use that language anymore. At least not in the public circles. But the truth is that we have all sinned. And there can be no forgiveness without confession and repentance. Those words are very important to God. The word confession... Hamalageo in Greek. It means to say the same thing that God says about our sin. It's to call it what it is. It's to, it's to admit it to God and to say the very same thing about our actions, our behavior, our thoughts that God says. And we agree with Him. Father, that was wrong. And I sinned when I said that or did that. And repentance means to have a change of mind or purpose, a change of heart, where we see what was wrong and then we turn from it. It's what the Old Testament prophets called us time and time again to do, to to turn, to turn away from our sin, our independent way, and to turn back to God and to come to Him. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as long as we try to pretend it's not there or stuff it or ignore it or say something else about it, the problem's never going to be dealt with. We need to admit it and quit it. That's as simple as I can put it. Sometimes parents have asked me the question about when is a child ready to take communion, for example, and participate. You know, and there are guidelines that I've given, things like we need to understand that this isn't a snack in the middle of the service. That these symbols, the bread and the cup, represent represent something very, very important. They are holy. They represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand what confession is. It's to admit our sin to God. And repentance is that idea of then quitting it, turning from it saying that was wrong and I'm going to choose to live differently. And if I stumble again and we fall and we do that, then we get up and we confess it again and we go on. And we set our heart to live differently. But to come to that point is a work of the Holy Spirit. I can't get there on my own. You know, our flesh will fight and resist tooth and nail changing behavior. It just doesn't want to give in. It doesn't want to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it takes God's power in our life to change, to see our condition, to admit our sin, and to walk with Him. When the Holy Spirit begins to empower us and we choose to follow Jesus Christ and are growing in His Word and in His grace, what a marvelous change that He makes in us. We need Him every day. All are under sin. Paul also says that all stand condemned. In verses 10 to 18, he strings together a number of verses from the Old Testament. Most are from the Psalms. Some come from Isaiah. 
but they all show the human condition, and it's like one right after the other. The rabbis had a term for this. They called it stringing pearls. The word was karaz, C-H-A-R-A-Z, karaz. It was a term for this. And we don't know whether this collection of verses was original with Paul or whether it was something that was commonly known and used by the rabbis. But it illustrates our sin. And so he goes through and he goes, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is the biblical view of sin. That sin is universal and that sin has affected every part of our being. If you were to categorize these verses from 10 to 18, Paul is talking about how sin has affected our character in verses 10 to 12, our speech in verses 13 and 14, and our conduct in verses 15 to 18. Nine times in the first four verses, Paul will use the words all or no one or not even one or together to illustrate the universal condition of man. And what he is saying here is that there is no one who is perfectly righteous all the time. No one who gets it right all the time. No one who does good all the time perfectly. The only exception to that was Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who came to fulfill all righteousness, who fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He tells us there's no one who seeks God. We'd like to think we do, but there is no one who would ever come to God apart from His initiative in our life. Christians have been debating that for a long time. And uh, I want to share some things with you that today are, in a sense, uh, to use a phrase one of my professors used, this is a little bit of putting some cookies on the top shelf. Okay, so hang in there with me as we talk about it. Every now and then I like to use my seminary training and talk about something that we probably don't talk about in uh, maybe some other places. But this whole debate about the freedom of the will Christians have gone back and forth on for centuries. One of the first debates was between a man named Pelagius and Augustine. Pelagius argued for free will, Augustine against it. Pelagius argued that people are free to sin or to choose God if they want to. And he was saying, how can you be morally responsible if you can't choose freely one or the other? And Augustine argued that unaided by God, a person is not able to stop sinning and choose God. You go along and Luther will defend Augustine's position. And he is in this debate with Erasmus at the time of the Reformation. And Luther writes his book that's become a classic called The Bondage of the Will. Luther affirmed that men and women make choices all the time about many different things in our lives. But he argued that in this area of choosing God, the will is impotent. We are so wholly given over to sin that we cannot choose God unless God in His mercy first acts to convict us of sin and to lead us to Christ as Savior. We would just continue on our way apart from the grace of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Jonathan Edwards later added one more important distinction to this discussion. He wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, and this was his distinction. He 
talked about the difference between the will and the mind in man, if you can kind of divide us up into those parts. And he argued that the will is free to choose, but it always chooses what the mind desires. And the mind that's set on the flesh does not regard submission to God and serving God as the best way to live. The mind that's set on the flesh thinks that the flesh is a pretty good way to live. And it follows the way of the world. And so the will always chooses what the mind desires. You could illustrate it like this. It's, it's like a lion. Say, take a lion, an animal that is a carnivore. It eats meat. That's its nature is to eat meat. And you could set before that lion a bowl of oats or oatmeal, you know, and you could set before that lion some raw meat. Which one is it going to choose? Every time it's going to choose that meat because that's its nature. It's not that it doesn't have the freedom to eat of either one. It could. It could eat of either one if it wanted to, but it just doesn't want to. And apart from God's work in our heart, we would never choose to follow Him either because we are lost in sin. And so Jesus comes along into our world and He tells us in John 6, 44, that no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one comes of their own. It's a work of God who draws people to Himself. It's a work of grace. That's what theologians mean by total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that man is incapable of doing good things. It's just that even our good things are marred by sin. And total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. We could be worse. We could be more depraved. And we see that in Romans 1 when God gave people over farther and farther into their sin. And what total depravity does mean, though, is that sin has so affected everything we do, it's affected our entire being so much that we are unable to save ourselves. We can no more save ourselves than Lazarus could raise himself from the dead. He couldn't do it. But when Jesus called, all the powers of hell could not keep Lazarus in the grave. That's the good news. That God in His grace has the power to change us and He calls us to Himself. All of us need a Savior. And God has provided one in Jesus Christ. As Paul moves along in this passage in verses 19 and 20, he tells us why the law was given. He said, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Why was the law given to man? Well, the law was given to teach us about the holiness of God. And that's one of the things that it does is it reveals the standard and the holiness of God and what he expects. Secondly, it also reveals our sin when we see that we fall short of it and we have failed to keep it. We see in our heart greed, the anger, the lust, the immorality, the petty things that we get concerned about. It's all there. 
And ultimately, the law was given to show us our need for a Savior. In Galatians 3.24, the scripture says that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Not by trying to keep the law, not by trying to be as good as we could be and do all of these things. It drives us to Christ, who is our hope and our righteousness. The word there uh, that's used in Galatians 3.24 when it talks about being put in charge to lead us to Christ means that it is like a schoolmaster. A schoolmaster who guides us, a teacher who guides us and shows us the way. The law shows us our sin so that ultimately every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. We are guilty and there's nothing we can say. You know, I was thinking about that passage of Scripture and early on in my life I had an experience that reminded me of that. I was driving home from the bowling alley one night as a teenager in Warren, Minnesota. It was about 10.30 at night and it was in the winter and I was supposed to be home at the time that my parents set. And I was running a little late and so I was driving through town a little bit faster than I should be. And I got stopped by the police that night. I remember the policeman coming up to the window. My heart is pounding as I'm thinking about this and what I'm going to say to my parents and the whole thing. And he came up and he asked me, he said, Do you know how fast you were driving on Johnson Avenue? And I said, Yes, sir, 35 miles an hour. And he said, What's the speed limit there? It's 30 miles an hour. And he said, And how fast were you going on 7th Street? I was going 30 miles an hour. And what's the speed limit there? It's 25 miles an hour. And he said, not only that, you were going too fast for the conditions because it was snowing lightly that evening and a little slippery. And as I sat there and I thought, what can I say? I was guilty. I wasn't obeying the speed limit. I was going faster than I should have been going. And there was nothing I could say to defend myself. You know, that's where we all stand before God. God were to open the books, look at His law, look at His word and what He has said, and He were to ask us about each of those areas of our life, we all would be guilty with nothing that we could say. Well, you know what that patrolman did that day? He let me go with a warning. I don't know if it's because I was honest about it and what I was saying, or if he just wanted to stop and check and be a good reminder for me to slow down. But what I experienced that night was grace. Grace. And boy, was I relieved. You know, the law makes us appreciate God's grace even more. When we see our sin as God sees it, and we see our guilt, and we recognize that the punishment for sin is death, it's separation from God. It's that absence of a relationship with Him. It's that loss that we experience. You know, the more we are aware of that, the more grateful we are for what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when we understand that we could not save ourselves no matter what we did, we can't change our heart, we can't change our behavior ultimately, only God can do that by His grace. How good to know it is that we have a Savior 
who loves us and who is calling to us. When I think about the application of this message, there's some things I want to share with you here. On the use of the law, when we talk about sin, we need to speak the truth in love. You know, this passage of Scripture is not to be used as a club to kind of beat somebody up, and it's not ever to be used in a way where we talk down to somebody as though we are better. We are all sinners. Yet at the same time, we can't ignore the truth of sin. Or we're not preaching the whole gospel. We're not telling people what they need to hear about the human condition in our heart that we have sinned and we are guilty before God. And so when we talk about sin, we need to speak the truth in love. We need to always balance grace and truth. And I want to be the kind of church that does that and does that well in the way that we proclaim the gospel. I'm going to share with you a story that illustrates it from a book by Randy Elkhorn. I really... Uh, enjoy him as a writer and this is a small book that was given to me called Grace and Truth but there's a very very powerful story of what that is like to walk the line between grace and truth he said a few years ago the church I used to pastor and still attend was picketed by 30 protesters why? well some of our people go to abortion clinics and they offer alternatives they share the gospel when they can And sometimes they hold up signs saying, Consider adoption, or let your baby live, or we will help financially. But one day, three pro-abortion groups decided to join forces and give our church, quote, a taste of our own medicine. On a rainy Sunday morning, our church parking lot was invaded by Radical Women for Choice, Rock for Choice, and the Lesbian Avengers. Having heard that they were coming, we set out donuts and coffee. I spent an hour and a half with a protester named Charles who held a sign that said, Keep Abortion Legal. We talked a little about abortion and a lot about Jesus Christ. I explained the gospel. He gave me his address. Later I sent him some of my books and some Christian literature. I like Charles, but when you believe, that, as I do, that abortion is killing children, It's a bit awkward serving coffee and holding an umbrella for someone waving a pro-abortion sign. If you don't understand, imagine doing that for someone holding a sign declaring legalize rape or kill blacks. Yet because of the opportunity to share Christ's grace, it seemed right. But it's not just truth that puts us in awkward situations. Grace does too. On the morning we were picketed, some street preachers with signs shouting hell and damnation showed up to take on the abortion activists. Their message contained truth, but their approach lacked grace. One of the street preachers barged between my daughter and me and a few of the lesbian Avengers just as we finally had an opportunity to talk with them. And the door of witnessing was slammed in our faces by Christian brothers. We tried to reason with the street preachers. After all, this was our church, and we didn't want them screaming at our guests, even if they were screaming truth. Most cooperated, but a few decided that we were waffling on truth, and it was an abomination for us to offer donuts to people who needed to be rebuked. Following Sunday, two street preachers picketed our church, scolding us for our pathetic attempts at donut and coffee evangelism. 
So after 21 unpicketed years, our church was picketed two weeks in a row. First, by radically liberal non-believers for speaking truth. And secondly, by radically conservative believers for showing grace. That's how it is on this tightrope walk between truth and grace. When you stand for truth, you're held in contempt by some non-Christians and even some Christians. And when you try to demonstrate grace, you're held in contempt by some Christians and even some non-Christians. When you try to live by grace and truth, in some eyes you'll be too radical, in other eyes not radical enough. Some people hate truth. Others hate grace. Jesus loves both. And we can't undercut either without undercutting him. So we have to make a choice. Are we going to spend our lives trying to please the grace haters or the truth haters? Or are we going to seek to please the only one whose judgment seat will stand before? Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. Amen. Amen. So when we come to using the law, speak the truth in law. When we think about the Father's work in salvation, we must pray for God to open the eyes and hearts of those who don't know Christ. Because we can't lead anyone to Christ. We can't push anyone into the kingdom apart from His work in their life. And finally, on God's call, if God is calling to you today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you have felt that conviction of the Holy Spirit or you have felt Him tug at your heart, we must come when the Father calls. We don't come on our own. We come when He calls and reaches out to us. And that's why these verses are so important to talk about today. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Come to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, when I think about this balance of walking the line between grace and truth, i got to admit that that's a challenge for me every day, too. And I think about that for our world. Our world needs to see both. And I pray that you would help us as a church, as believers, to be able to do that, to lift up the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, but to also demonstrate your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We are all sinners, and we need your grace. We need your mercy and power to be at work in our life each and every day. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for your amazing grace. And if you are here today and you want to taste that grace and come to know him, I invite you to confess your sins to Christ and ask him to come into your heart and be your Savior and Lord. And he will never forsake you. He will never, no, never leave you. Amen.